walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 71. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Whichever branch of the Camino you're following across Europe, to some degree you're always walking through Rome. On the Camino Frances, maybe you think of Sirauki and that bridge, or the old Roman road on the alternate route through Calzadilla de los Hermanios. You've got Merida on the Via de la Plata, Lugo on the Primitivo, the Segovian Aqueduct on the Camino de Madrid, and Conimbriga on the Portugues. And that's without bringing up any of the pilgrim roads through Italy. The routes through France, formerly Gaul, are no exception. When you're following the Via Podiensis, as we'll continue to do today, in part 9 of this series, you start hearing references to Rome right from the beginning, with stories about Julius Caesar sweeping through Sog and Nasbinal. The most visible reminders, though, appear further south. In our previous episode, we passed through the town of Lectur, which has a small museum featuring mosaics, sarcophagi, and altar stones from Rome. Today, though, we arrive at the best clustering of Roman ruins on the whole route. Kevin Greenstreet, who hails from near Canterbury, England, which fittingly also has Roman ancestry, joins me for this walk, picking up in Condom and proceeding some 83 kilometers to Air-sur-le-Dour. Kevin also deserves the award for infinite patience, as we recorded this interview in January, so he has the longest wait of anyone in this series by far. Sorry about that, Kevin. Even months later, though, I still recalled Kevin's enthusiasm for the Roman Museum in Aos, one of the main towns in this section, and that, combined with the two significant Roman ruins accessible on this stretch, made me want to learn a bit more about the Roman impact on the area. Ultimately, this led me to Dr. Simon Esmond Cleary, who oversaw an archaeological dig at the remains in Aos, and is also quite familiar with the nearby Roman villa of Seviac. Given how some of my conversations with historians have gone in this series, I suppose I should announce up front, good news! Rome actually is real. It did exist. No dramatic revisionism required here. So, you know, that was a relief. And to me, it was really valuable to have this chance to flesh out those skeletal remains, getting a sense of what life was like in Roman Gaul. It's not all Rome, though. As Kevin and I march through this section, we'll also talk about the tiniest fortified village in Gers, a lunch he couldn't pass up in Nogaro, and one of the most memorable sheets of the whole walk. Hope you enjoy. Kevin Greenstreet of Ramsgate, England, is a moderator on the GR65 Via Podiensis Walking the Lapui Route Facebook group. So we're talking about Condom Tueos today. But before we do, Kevin Greenstreet, Ramsgate, England, near Canterbury. I'm just curious, big picture, what first drew you to the Via Podiensis and what keeps drawing you back? Like, I guess, a lot of people. I walked the Camino Frances in Spain. I took six months off work to do some walking, basically. 
And I thought I would walk from Le Puy to Santiago. The more I thought about it, the more I sort of talked myself out of it. I ended up walking from San John to Santiago. And when I came home, I thought, I think I could have done the French leg too. And I bumped into some people in Spain. That some of them walked from Germany or from Poland. And I was thinking, well, this is a big deal. You know, this is a massive distance that they were walking. And they're all in good spirits, all the different people I met. And I thought, I could have done the French bit. I came home and just a month or so later, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do it. I pretty much had in my mind, right, I'm going to do this. I booked the Eurostar and I think I started a week later, six days later. I was putting it off thinking, what can I do? Because I still had September, October. So two months off work. And so I thought, well, I could go on holiday. And, no, I'm going to go to France. You know, sometimes you make the decision and it's just sort of, you click, right, I'm doing it now. Yeah. And that was that. I booked three days accommodation for when I arrived, Le Puy en Valais, and then another two nights. And then after that, I just took it as it came, a bit like, because my own experience of real long distance walk was walking in Spain a month or two before. So that is sort of what I went on. I had done various long walks before, but not in a pilgrim style. The more I looked into it, the more it appealed. I joined a, a couple of Facebook groups for the walk. And people are friendly, aren't they? You know, people like to help. You get the enthusiasm from other people as they talk to you about how nice it is. You should stay here. You should stay there. I was sort of hooked. Once I'd done that walk, the walking in France really took over. You know, it's like, I must go again. I must go again. I, I didn't do this little bit. I didn't do a variant, the, the Sully Valley route, for example. And so I keep going back, probably back this year again. I've got three weeks off in September, so I'm thinking I should go there again. What is it about France that has hooked you maybe in a different way than Spain did? Why do you find yourself on the Chemin more than the Camino? Simply, it's a lot easier to get to. <laughs> I can take a train to Paris on the Eurostar. Spain is quite easy to get to, but France is simply easier and it's easier to get home. I did actually walk in Spain. I walked to Camino del Baztan. In September, September this year, that finishes in Pamplona. It's not difficult to get back. That the particular walk in France, the Chemin de Saint-Jacques, is busy without being particularly busy. You can be on your own or not, as you want, really. Or you can walk all day and really see nobody, but you know that there's always someone around. It doesn't feel remote, even if you're on your own. There aren't many bunk beds, and <laughs> the food is pretty much fantastic. Even the most basic food is going to be tasty. Whereas when you walk in Spain, you can get some lovely food, but they don't tend to dish it up with pride in the same way that you stay in the Gite and the Gite owner will come out and they've got a plate of food for you. And you can tell that they want you to enjoy this piece of food. It isn't just put down in front of you to fill yourself with wherever it might be, chicken or chips or whatever. There's just something about the manner it seems to be done with some kind of love. I'm pretty sure you've found this too. Absolutely. Whether it's a salad, bowl of soup, some lentils, I can just tell that the person, you know, they want you to enjoy this. And if you tell them you enjoy it, they're um, even more appreciative of the fact that you like it. Don't get me wrong, the food in Spain is pretty great. But sometimes a pork chop and chips three times, four times in a week. <laughs> I mean, I, I love a pilgrim menu as much as the next pilgrim, but... 
you know, in France, it's just done a little bit more panache. Understood. All right. So we are talking about a chunk of the Via Podiensis, the Chemin Saint-Jacques, that is a bit further south. Today, we're talking about the stretch from Condom to Eos. It's around 83 kilometers, which makes for a longer three stages, a more manageable four. How did you approach this section? I normally tend to, the night before, I will arrive somewhere and I'll think how I feel and I'll look at the next towns coming along and I see one 19 maybe and I think uh, I might be able to do a 25 or I might be able to do a 30. You know, if I'm feeling good, I can do a 30 or 32. But at the end of that day, I tend to regret doing the 32. I tend not to eat a lunch or a big lunch normally. There have been exceptions. So I tend not to stop for too long, especially if there's a uh, cafe or a Donativo pause somewhere. I will always stop and have a coffee or just to chill out for 10 minutes or so. But if I stop for too long, I, I, don't want, I don't want to walk again. I get comfortable. So that's pretty much how I attack it. But sometimes names stand out, don't they? And uh, you think... I must go there, or I must visit this particular site. AOs, the first time I walked, I walked through it. I didn't stop, apart from a coffee and a museum. So this time, that was definitely going to be a stop. And Air Sur Le Dour, I'd been there once before. I wanted to go again. Some stops sort of write themselves, don't they? Yeah. Let's talk about the first leg of this then. So Condom to Eos is about 34 kilometers, might be one long stage or two short stages, depending on how people choose to approach it. And leaving Condom, there's also a choice to make because just a handful of kilometers into the walk, there's a detour to Larasangla, which is the smallest fortified village in the region that's still standing, still intact. Did you make that detour? Yes, I did. And I stopped in Lara Single, and I'm extremely pleased I did. I had heard from other people that it was worth a detour, and I arrived there, and I thought, this is nice. I think there was probably three coaches in a car park. The place was busy. I had a little walk around. I stopped for a coffee, and in the meantime, all the coaches had disappeared. So I finished my coffee. I walked back to bit difficult to call it a village even it's it's such a small walled experience it's it's like a little film set the coach had gone and the place was deserted it was a totally different experience in 15 minutes and I stayed in a very nice jeep just outside the wall called La Haut I believe it was called La Haut de La Rosingle I don't know if you know this place yeah it has a uh, very nice sloped garden so when you sit out the back of the jeep you sort of overlooking the countryside and it's lovely, you know, after a long walk to sit up there. They've done a particularly nice ginger beer, which I'd never tried before. French one, I believe. And sitting outside there with a ginger beer and the sun had come up. It, it had rained a lot for maybe the previous three or four days, pretty much nonstop. So the morning of that walk, sun came out. I'm sitting in the back garden, chickens running around, bottle of ginger beer in my hand. All was right with the world. I had a lovely room. I had the room to myself, and yeah, it was great. Very friendly people, very friendly experience. Yeah, really enjoyed it. And on a clear day, that might be your first chance to see the Pyrenees in the distance, which is quite exciting. You know what? That probably is somewhere around there, I would imagine, yeah. This second section, 
a lot of people, they split the Shaman de Saint-Jacques pretty much into two halves. Le Puy to Fijac or Carol, or Carol to Saint-Jean. And the first section, I feel, gets walked a lot more than the second section. But the second section is my favourite. The first section is undoubtedly beautiful, that Obrac is wonderful. But there's something about heading towards the Pyrenees and each day you get another glimpse. And, oh, they seem a long way, but they just get fractionally closer and closer. The countryside is different. The food is different. The writing tends to be more of a Basque script the closer you get to the Pyrenees. You feel like you could be in a different country the closer you get to the Pyrenees. The changing of the countryside, the sunflowers or vineyard, the food, you're going to be eating duck instead of sausage, maybe. Yeah, 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 it's great, yeah. <laughs> I like how you characterize Lars Angla as like a film set, because it absolutely feels that way. It's so compact. And one of the things I noticed was because I would often walk the stage of going condom to Eos, I would always hit Lars Angla before anyone had even woken up. <laughs> so it was just an empty place which is charming in its own right and so I, I did what you did one trip and I stayed in La Sangla and I got to be there for the buzz when it was filled with people when the ice cream shop was open and see it in full swing and I think both are good ways to enjoy it I'd recommend it to anybody yeah it's great and it's such a short little detour it adds no more than a kilometer to the walk We'll move forward from there, from Larsangle to Montreal, Duguerre. It's about 11 kilometers more. And so a lot of people will go Condom to Montreal. It's about a 16-kilometer stage. Anything stand out for you in that section? You are walking through lovely countryside. If you go in September, as I did on two occasions I walked this stretch, the vineyards, the vines, are heavy with grapes. It's like another film set. If you were to see a picture or a postcard of a classic vineyard full of grapes, you will be walking through this along lovely little tracks. And you may well be able to grab the odd grape as you're passing by and uh, try to sample a few. And they are very, very good. Basically, you're walking through more and more lovely French countryside, really. And it's flat. I mean, so much of this three-stage stretch we're talking about is very, very flat, generally. Yeah, it's not difficult. A few undulations. A classic look of a gentle hill with rows and rows of vines. You could take some really, really good photographs of the vines sweeping across the fields. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. And along the way, you'll pass a medieval bridge, the Pont d'Artigue. There's a small church out in the countryside, the Église de Rutge, which is the oldest church in the area. And then eventually you make it to Montreal, which is accorded the status of one of the most beautiful villages in France. What are your thoughts on Montreal? The section as you walk into the town, you come off of the countryside and then you walk along the road. And you think, oh, I'm walking along the road, it's well, maybe it's not quite so nice. And then you round a corner and then you are in the town square with a lovely fountain, flowers all around it. There's like a covered arcade on two sides with a cafe, bar, shops, and it's like a pretty much perfect small town square, a perfect place to relax and take in the town square. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. The first time I stayed in Montreal and the second time I passed through, 
I wanted to try to stay in different places, not all the time, but stage it slightly different so I could experience a town or a jeep that I hadn't experienced the first time around. That's great. It's a lovely town, yeah. And it's important to stock up a little bit because there's not a lot of options for food. The next stretch, 17 and a half kilometers onward to AOs, there's a jeep with a small cafe. But other than that, it's wide open countryside from there. Yeah, there isn't too much. If anyone's going to walk that section and you come across a farmhouse with the option of coffee and cakes and biscuits, always take the coffee. Always go for the cake. <laughs> it's great. It's a really, really nice spot. La Maisonette. Because like you said, there isn't too much to be had along there. There is one jeep that stands out in my memory in the village of La Motte in this area, La Milbourne. And when they're not busy cleaning up the jeep, they run a cafe outdoors. They have a big friendly dog that is happy to greet pilgrims and a ton of seating. After that, wherever we've stopped for food... We then end up in basically a long, straight, shady walk yep. through the green tunnel on two AOs. Yeah, that's a lovely walk. I arrived in AOs on the Monday and I'm walking in and I'd walked through before and had a very nice coffee. And there's an iconic Cafe de France, Hotel de France. It's an extremely famous building. And most photographs of AOs will have a picture of this next uh, semi-timbered structure it looks like it could be from the 1400s 1500s it has that sort of Tudor look about it so I'm walking through it oh, and I get myself a nice coffee and it happens to be a Monday so shut again uh. but walking into a town in France on a Sunday or a Monday is a totally different experience to walking into it in pretty much any other day of the week it's surprising in England Many years ago, we would have half-day closing or maybe one particular town wouldn't be open on a Wednesday afternoon or Tuesday or Thursday. And in France, they keep to this on a Monday. There's a good chance that anywhere you think you're going to stock up, you won't be able to. But it's a lovely, lovely town. The buildings are great. The tourist information place was open on a Monday. So if you need information, then it is there. One of my favourite things of O's is the archaeological museum there, the treasure of O's, the Roman coins. Have you visited? Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I have an interest in classical Roman Greek history. And the coins there, they are not the most common emperors, let me say, from uh, 100 AD or 160 AD, around, around this sort of time. I knew of these emperors, but they're not the ones that jump out of you on TV or documentaries. They tend to stick to you, Caesar or Augustus or Tiberius. Yes, it's great. Some of the gold jewellery. It's a really good museum if anyone wants to visit it. Even if you're passing through town, it won't take up more than an hour of your time. It's a small but extremely interesting diversion. You know, you could be in there for half an hour. They look after your bag, walk around the museum, have a little tour. And then on your way, and you get an idea of the Roman occupation of the area, which is always nice. This is a great stretch for fans of Rome, because just after Montreal, you can make a two-kilometer detour to the Roman villa of Seviac, which has tons of preserved Roman mosaics. And there's another Roman villa that's just a kilometer outside of Aos that it's possible to visit. It's a really good section for that. 
Yeah, and anyone planning to go through that area, I would recommend visiting at least one of these, the new museum or one of the villas, because it really will give you an, an idea of the actual history of the time. The Roman period seems so distant 2,000 years ago. It feels so distant, but when you're there, you're walking on the ground that Romans were walking on, sitting on. You could sit somewhere and, for all you know, a Roman centurion could have been sitting in the exact same spot 2,000 years ago. It has that sort of feel about it. You're looking at a coin that a Roman bought some bread from a bakery 2,000 years ago with that coin that you see in that museum. Yeah, it really brings it back, you know. Yeah, I love it. Even if you go in the cathedral, I remember staring at the walls of the cathedral that are just these mixed layers of building materials. And then I learned later that old Roman buildings were repurposed into the cathedral. So the remnants of Rome are visible in the walls of the cathedral. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a similar concept in England with Hadrian's Wall. There's not much left of it because over the centuries, people would take parts of the wall down and use it to build a wall in their house or repurposing materials, which nowadays it's an important historical structure, but the people didn't have those worries. Cut rock is expensive. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we've made it through the first stage. In some ways, the most interesting of the three stages we're talking about in this section, there's a lot going on on the walk to AOs. The next leg of the walk AOs to Nogaro is much shorter in comparison. It's about 21 kilometers. It's also quite flat. Also a lot of agricultural terrain that you're walking through. Only one village, really, Menciet, right around the midpoint on the way to Nogaro. So what stands out for you in this section of the walk? It isn't actually my favourite <laughs> stretch of There's a little bit of road walking going on or path walking. And when you're walking in France, in the countryside, it's fantastic. So when you detour off of it, it isn't a disappointment, but you want to be back in the countryside again. Walking along in the French countryside with the sun on your back, you're feeling good. It's therapeutic. It's extremely nice way to spend your day. And then you arrive in Nagara, which I've stopped there before. It's not the prettiest of towns. There's the main road where you'll be walking is also on the main road pretty much. But I've loved it there. I've stayed there. In, there's like a municipal sports centre. I stayed there a few years ago, which is very nice. Extremely cheap too. And as a good kitchen, I was walking on my own. But as is the way, you bump into people. And so we were sitting around chatting, having a beer. And we decided to go to the supermarket. And we all bought various items of food. And we went back to the sports centre there. And we cooked a meal for maybe a dozen people. It was great. It was really good fun. I love to cook. But I don't really want to be cooking often when I'm walking. I prefer someone else to do it. <laughs> be honest with you. But yeah, it was great fun. It's a really, really good experience. It's one of one of the highlight memories of walking on the Barbadensis in Nagaro, cooking a, a meal, all helping out, all washing up together, someone stirring this, someone opening a bottle of wine. Yeah, great fun. This time round, I arrived in Nagaro just around lunchtime and I was walking to Lansuburan. This was going to be my stop. And I thought, well, still quite early. Maybe I can get a lunch. So I stopped for a lunch and it was three courses. I had a pasta salad, 
and had a fricassee of duck hearts with bacon lardons and mushrooms, cauliflower and maybe some rice and a chocolate rice pudding for 14 euro. Anyone walking through Nagara, when you get to the midway point, you have to cross over a road. There's a junction and there's a cafe restaurant on the left hand side as you're walking through town. And it's just there. The food was wonderful. And for 14 euro for three courses is exceptional value. You just don't get food of that quality of, for that price. And you don't get fricassee of duck hearts uh, <laughs> uh, too often. You know, it's, I mean, I wouldn't actually want fricassee of duck hearts. But if I see it on a menu, I'm going to think, oh, I'm going to have to try it. I'm going to have to, have to see what it's like. But unfortunately, eating a three-course meal and then walking another two hours out of town isn't really the best experience. And then when you arrive, you've got another three-course meal tree in the <laughs> evening. Yeah, that was a struggle that day. It's hard work doing all this eating on pilgrimage. I appreciate that in this stage, this 21-kilometer stage, you immediately skipped to Nagaro. Because when I look at my notes for this stage, I have down, like, I know those first 11 kilometers exist to Manciet, but in my memory, it's just a haze. Manciet, you know, I remember the bull ring. You don't see a lot of bull rings in the no. early parts of the walk. So that stands out. There's a building covered in ivy in Manciet that sticks in my memory for some reason. But then continue on to Nagaro. There's one point now where there's an art exhibit that has portraits of pilgrims along the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, I know this. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's some like flickers of memory. But by and large, the thing that I think about when I think about Nagaro is eating well. Yeah. So my mind immediately goes to food as well. You have two giant supermarkets. You have three bakeries. You've got multiple pizzerias and you got duck hearts. So what more could you want? <laughs> yeah. As in a fair bit of daily walking, even if the countryside if it's not particularly inspiring, whether it is or isn't, you enter a zone where you, your mind is sort of empty and it's filled at the same time. It's a, a weird concept. You're not overwhelmed by thoughts but it's like a kind of meditation so you can walk for maybe half an hour and realize that you haven't really paid any attention because you're enjoying being out in a, a wonderful countryside sometimes you startle yourself back into reality oh well i'm here what happened in the last half an hour i can't remember yeah <laughs> yeah this could be a problem when you're trying to put together a guidebook <laughs> yeah, yeah, i'm sure yeah I think you probably need a dictaphone or something like this so you can keep a running commentary. Just something to buzz you every yeah. 10 minutes to make sure you're paying attention. The one other thing I'll say about Nagaro, and then we'll go into the third stage, is I think just given that the church is kind of at the very end of the village, it's easy to miss it. Yeah. It has a lovely altar and some really impressive capitals. The Sculptures on the top of the columns, right up near the front. They're lit up, and it's a beautiful place, so don't miss it. No, don't miss that. You're right. I'm pretty sure if it was more central or on the way into town, it would be a lot more famous than it is. One time, I, I actually had to go back because I've got up. I'm walking out of town. It's up a hill. The road goes up, and you're just starting the day, and you're not focused on stopping to visit a church. Five minutes after you've, you've started your walk, it's like if you start walking from Nagaro, you will be stopping again within five minutes to visit the church. 
people don't really want to stop as soon as they started, do they? You know, if some accommodation was at that end of town, I think more people would walk closer to the church, put their stuff down, and then they would go in. Whereas at the moment, it feels like it's a little bit too far away, but not too far away, you know. I'm with you. It's funny how at the end of a long walk, just having to go an extra 100 meters uphill, it's too much. Yeah. It's non-negotiable. All right. The last stage is Nogaro to Ersur Ladur. It's about 28 kilometers, probably the flattest of all of these flat stages. It's where you really officially enter corn country. Yes. Where you've got the corn plants. And if you're there at a certain time of year, the corn is towering on both sides of you. Yeah, it makes for a good photo. Talk about meditative. When you're walking between rows of corn, you can get into some deep spots. Yeah. <laughs> and there is very little food along this stretch. So it's a long way with pretty limited opportunities for services. Yes. When you arrive at the village of Lansubiran, there's a very nice jeep there, which I've stayed in. They have a Donativo outside, a large sort of lean-to sort of open shed with a fully stocked fridge and food and drink. And anybody who's walking from Nagaro, pretty much, if they're not stopping there, they should stop for a relax because you can bump up your calories, get some chocolate, piece of cake, croissant, coffee, soft drinks. And like I say, there isn't too much to be had in the way of refreshments. So yes, definitely stop there. The owners are lovely. They do it to help people. Take advantage of every stop. Someone's making an effort to help. And I think their reward is someone stopping. If people didn't stop, they wouldn't do it. You would lose these generous offers from people. Should always take advantage, really. And it's almost the only game in town. You know, that's eight kilometers into the walk. Yeah. The other possibility is about 15 kilometers into the walk, Le Lin, La Pujol, where there's a cafe. Maybe you get there when it's open. Maybe you get there on a day that it's open. But if not, you're going 25 kilometers before your next shot at food. Yeah, I don't like to carry much in the way of provisions with me. Plenty of water and maybe a bar of chocolate or a push because every ounce counts, as they say, you know. And if you stop and eat somewhere, it's something you don't have to carry. Is there anything else you remember from this walk en route to Ersur Ladur? As you can tell, there's a bit of a theme. It tends to be based around food and drink and stopping. The end of it is another one, which is not particularly not a wonderful walk. You walk along a fair bit of road and then you arrive in town. And on the way, like, so the last village you pass through that has food 25 kilometers in is Barcelona du Guerres, which always feels like the zombies have come through town and chased everyone out. It's surprisingly big. And yet it feels utterly deserted. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand that place. It's one of those where, like, I'm sure the people who live there are happy there and they enjoy good lives. I (laughs) have never been able to connect with it. Yeah, they probably like it like that. Yeah. Let the pilgrims keep going. (laughs) And so you do. And that's where you, like you said, you hit the highway. And now you're following the highway past the big Carrefour supermarket. And it's exposed. And if it's summer and it's hot, like you're just thinking about how badly you want to get to Ersur Ladur. And then finally, you know, you come up to the Adur River. Yeah. You cross the bridge and there you are. You cross the bridge and instantly it feels like a town that you want to spend some time in. There's two cafe bars 
on the side of the river. Directly as you cross over the bridge, there's another cafe in front of you. And you're looking around and think, yeah, this is nice. It's a fantastic place to hang out, a grassy riverbank where you can lounge if you get there before your jeet opens and you don't have anything better to do. It has two fantastic churches, the cathedral in the center that is colorful, some really vivid designs. And then you have Saint-Quiteri on the outskirts, on the way out of town, that has a, an amazing area if you can get in there with a tour to visit the 5th century sarcophagus. So there's some beautiful things in the town. Yeah, also, a lot of the towns that you pass through, the big ones, the small ones, you can't really do any window shopping. But in Air Soulador, there's pretty much two main roads running parallel. And you can actually just have a bit of a stroll, looking at boulangerie, looking at shop selling bags or something, or clothes shop. You can actually just spend a pleasant half an hour, an hour, just having a, a nice little stroll around. Whereas, like I say, in many, many of the towns that you pass through, there isn't really that to do. They're all perfectly lovely, but they don't really warrant the stroll and a bit of window shopping, which is quite a nice pastime. And also... The first time I visited Air Soulador, the last weekend in September, there was a festival, a music festival of some kind, called, I believe, Voca, V-O-C-A, Voca Follies. This was the last weekend in September. It's like a party. The town, everybody was out. And there was music in squares. There was dancing going on. People wearing a kind of a uniform for the fiesta. They had like a red handkerchief around the neck a white shirt, similar to actually what I've seen people wearing in Spain, a similar sort of concept to like you can see in Pamplona or somewhere like this. But this is the last weekend in September. Anyone passing through that area, if you get to Air Solador on the Friday or the Saturday, try to arrange it so you stop there for one or two nights because it's a good feel in town. What is your jeet of choice in Air Solador? I had stayed in a very nice hotel well, say very nice, a cheap hotel, but very good. But my recommendation would be the Ursuline Chapel, which is a little out of town, unfortunately. Five-minute walk, nothing. But it's wonderful. It's a wonderful church, but you're staying in it. Yeah. Huge, great vaulted ceilings, massive stained glass windows, big long table lit with candles where you have your communal meal. It's exceptional. From the outside, you think, oh, this is it, is it? Okay. You go in, you walk around the corner, and wow, it's a proper jaw-dropping experience. The hosts were great. The food was great. And every time you walked from where you sleep out of the room, you were in the, the main body of the church. It's incredible. I took quite a lot of photographs there, and friends of mine were, you're staying there. You know, they, they cannot believe. And the money you spend is not a great deal of money, but you cannot really. If you just go on holiday in France, you couldn't just go and stay in a church somewhere. You don't just go and sleep in a huge ceiling church with stained glass windows and think it's wonderful. You can't just go and do that. But in Air Sur Le Dour, you can do it. You can book a bed and for not a lot of money, you have a comfortable bed. There was PowerPoints for every bed. And you get a lovely meal. The whole experience is worth a lot more money than what you will pay. 
and it isn't something you can just replicate. There will be some lovely hotels there, but this this is an experience that you won't get in many places. Yeah, it's one of those memorable places that I've stayed. And like you, my first time in Ersuladur, I stayed at Hotel de la Pais. Oh, me too. Right in the center. Yeah. Tremendously pilgrim friendly. Yeah. Very inexpensive. I feel bad because they're fantastic. And I'm sure there are other wonderful, accommodating Jeets and Ersuladur that work really hard, that care a lot about pilgrims. There is just something unique about that experience in the Chapelle d'Ursuline. Oh, yeah, there's some very highly rated jeets in Ersuladur. Many of them. They're well-known, famous in the pilgrim circles. But, yes, to stay in, in the church is an experience that you won't get again. It's a great place to stop, so it makes it a perfectly suitable place for us to stop this conversation as well, Kevin. I really appreciate you sharing all of your expertise, your experiences along the route with me. Dr. Simon Esmond Cleary is Professor Emeritus of Roman Archaeology at the University of Birmingham. Among other things, he's the author of The Roman West, A.D. 200 to 500, An Archaeological Study. Thank you again for speaking with me. I appreciate it. There's not a lot of English language writing about AOs and about the Roman remains in that area, so I was thrilled to find your article on the subject. And before we get to AOs and Seviac, I want to just establish the historical context. So this area that we're talking about was all formerly part of Gaul and conquered by Rome around the first century BCE, correct? That's right. Gaul or Gallia is what the Romans called essentially modern France and Belgium. And indeed, there was a, what is now northern Italy was Gallia Cisalpina, Gallia, this side of the Alps. So it's a big geographical area centered on modern France. What inspired Roman conquests specifically in this region? The Romans conquer all of Gaul, all of modern day France and much of Belgium and so on in the 50s of the first century BCE. And it's all down to that well-known megalomaniac, Julius Caesar. <laughs> now, the Romans were raving imperialists. They had a view that it was their divinely ordained mission to rule the world and to bring the benefits of their civilization to other lesser peoples. So that was a sort of general cultural or ideological view that they had. More specifically, for an ambitious Roman, the way to get on was by successful warfare. And for a, an ambitious Roman aristocrat like Julius Caesar, the way to, to make and keep his reputation was to conquer people. Now, Caesar had just been consul, that is one of the two annual senior magistrates at Rome. And the consulship was the highest office that money could buy. And it took a great deal of money to buy the consulship. So 
Caesar had specific financial reasons as well as political reasons for wanting to indulge in conquest. In fact, initially, he'd been thinking of what is now the Balkans, but he turned his view towards Gaul and indulged in a, a long series of campaigns in this area, which both kept him in the public eye at Rome because of his great military conquests. In fact, he even twice made expeditions to Britain, God help us. <laughs> and it also it brought him immense amounts of booty and of slaves and so on, riches with which he could both repay his existing debts and finance his future activity. So the conquest of Gaul was not according to any strategic plan or anything like that. It was simply personal ambition, personal need for money. And it helped that Caesar was a military genius. So all of that happened around 50 BC? Yeah, between 60 and 50 BC in, in round figures. Perfect. As we turn our focus then specifically to the significant Roman remains that have been uncovered in Aos and Seviac, we've moved forward in time. So in a nutshell, what time period do these remains date to? And what kinds of structures have been documented in these areas? Right. Most of what you can see at both Aos and Seviac dates to the 4th century AD, so half millennium after the conquest of Gaul, by which time Gaul had become fully integrated into the Roman Empire, and people in Gaul would regard themselves as Roman citizens. Indeed, they, they were legally Roman citizens. They were part of this enormous empire. And to rule that empire, essentially, it was all divided up into a series of little city-states. You had a city with a surrounding territory, which was usually based on the territory of one of the peoples that Caesar had so kindly conquered. And Aos was one of these towns, one of these cities. It was the administrative capital for an area not unlike the modern-day département de Gers, what you in, in the States or we in the UK would probably call something like a county. Okay. So what you can see at Aos is the excavated remains of a house which lasted for two or three hundred years, but its maximum period of expansion and decoration and so on was the fourth century AD. And that's also the date for the site at Seviac, a few miles north of Aos, which was what we call a villa. Essentially, the classic definition is a villa is a farm, so it's an agricultural property. But by the fourth century, it was a huge country residence full of mosaics and statuary and all mod cons according to the fourth century. So the site at Aos is essentially urban and the site at Seviac is essentially rural. But of course, they're so close together, they're all part of the same sort of network. And I would imagine that the owners of a villa like Seviac would also know all the people who were worth knowing in Aos itself. What do we know more broadly about what life was like in these parts of the Roman Empire during the peaks of these settlements? Was it mostly agricultural in focus? Very much agricultural. Something like 90% of the population of the Roman Empire lived off the land. The Roman Empire was essentially just a very big pre-industrial economy. Most people were engaged in agriculture, lived from agriculture, and even those who weren't directly involved in agriculture depended on the output of farmers, peasants, 
agricultural laborers, the herdsmen, the cultivators, and so on. So Roman civilization, in a sense, is the icing on a very big cake of a lot of people doing not very nice work out in the fields. So you've performed a close study of one house in the AO's site. That's how I found you, was in your write-up. Mm -hmm. What made that structure a place worthy of such careful examination? And what did you learn through your study of it? Part of the reason for digging it was that, in general, much more effort has been expended digging up the big public monuments and buildings, the temples, the amphitheaters, the hippodromes, the bath buildings, and so on, because they're big and solid and fun and, you know, easy to make a story about. The consequence of that has been that we haven't always spent as much time as we should have looking at what people actually lived in. And so there's been a, a conscious effort to rebalance towards understanding more about houses, daily life, and so on and so forth. Now, Eos offers a rare example in France of a Roman city that was abandoned at the end of the Roman period and never reoccupied. Most of these Roman cities in France continued to be occupied and are now called places like Paris and okay. Bordeaux and Lyon and Marseille and so on, and have been all built over. So it's very difficult to excavate any large area. Eos was abandoned. The, the town moved up the hill to where the present day town is. So there's a big area which is unoccupied and available for excavation. And aerial photographs have shown evidence for the presence there of this large house. So it looked like a good target for a big excavation to learn a lot more about the daily life of people rather than the temples and amphitheaters. What does the layout, the structure of a Roman building tell us about how people lived at that time? Well, to an extent, it obviously depends on how rich the people were, how high up the social ladder, how big the building is. Now, the one at Ao's, which we looked at, is clearly the house of a rich person or a rich family. And it's arranged around an internal courtyard. So you've got a, at the centre, you have what's probably laid out as a garden, surrounded by colonnades, and then the rooms opening off, a bit sort of Spanish colonial in a way. And... One of the crucial things about a Roman house was obviously that there were different rooms for different purposes, like reception rooms, dining rooms. Roman upper classes were very keen on baths, not in the sense of a swimming pool and not in the sense of you know, the ordinary bath, but a building devoted to getting clean, partly because they liked being clean, but also because being clean was one of the things that distinguished Romans from barbarians. You know, the barbarians in that Roman eyes literally were the great unwashed. So there's a, a whole series of rooms which reflect the taste, the wealth, the activities of the proprietor and his family. And crucial in, in the way these houses worked was, if you were a visitor, how far into the house you were allowed to go. So, for instance, if you were a tradesman or something, well, you went to the tradesman's entrance and you did whatever you had to do round the back. Whereas if you were somebody important whom the owner wanted to impress, they were allowed right into the house and you know, in, into the best rooms and given a sumptuous meal and so on and so forth. So, you know, it depends 
who you are, how important you are as to which bits of the house you get to see. But in a way, that's quite like modern houses as well. So for walkers, pilgrims who are following the Via Podiensis, to see Seviac is a few kilometers of a detour. Yeah. The Roman remains are about a kilometer outside of the center of Aos. Yes. These are both small detours. They're doable. So if a walker were to make that detour and decided they wanted to go see Seviac or they wanted to go see Aos, Elusa, what would you suggest that they keep an eye out for that is special or noteworthy at either site that they would be able to appreciate as laymen? Because this is sometimes the challenge yeah. for those of us who don't have any grounding in the classics when we go to a, a site of ruins is being able to actually discern what's noteworthy. So what would you suggest? Well, at Seviac, one of the obvious things about that complex is that it's got a, a lot of coloured mosaics covering the floors, some of which, they're mostly geometric, but some of which are quite fun because they're, they're trompe l'oeil, they're designed to deceive the eye. So it gives you a, a sense of the way in which people could display their wealth. Yes, I mean, nothing at Soviac survives more than about knee high, but at the site there are models of it in 3D, and you have to try and reconstruct it in your mind in three dimensions, rather like those artificial intelligence enhanced programs, you know, with <laughs> computer-generated reconstructions. Well, your brain has to be the computer to generate your own mental reconstruction. So Seviac, certainly for, for the mosaics. AO is there, yes, the site itself, the house we've dug, where the walls and so on are laid out. One of the odd things about that house was that it didn't yield much in the way of mosaics and decoration, which was a surprise to us. But oddly enough, if you only had one hour and you had to go and visit something there, I wouldn't recommend either Saviac or the House of Aos. <laughs> I recommend you go into the modern town of Aos, which is a very nice South French town, and go to the museum. Mm. Because in the basement of the museum, there is displayed an extraordinary hoard of material uncovered about 30 years ago on the site of the Roman town and dating to the 260s AD. There are something like 28,000 silver coins and sets of jewellery, necklaces and earrings, bracelets in gold, precious stones and so on, and various other artefacts. For a start, it's immensely impressive just to look at, but my French colleagues have teased a really interesting story out of it as to how it was assembled because some of the coins relate to historical events in the 260s, which we'd know happened. And clearly the owner of this hoard, whoever it was who buried it, had been involved in some of these events and had traveled around the empire, possibly in the army or the civil service, before ending up back at Aos. So it's not only a wonderful collection of things to look at, but the story they tell is quite special. And in fact, it's one of the most important Roman hordes ever found in Europe. Walkers will appreciate that advice because no detour is required. The museum is right on the route. <laughs> the museum is right on the route. It is nice and cool if it's hot summer. And there are some decent restaurants in Aos. This is true. Well, let's wrap up with this. You mentioned before we started recording 
that you know a story about a pilgrim walking through AOs, but this was not a pilgrim walking towards Santiago de Compostela. So what's the story here? Yes, oddly enough, and we're back to the 4th century AD, the period of Seviac, the period of the big house in, in AOs, we have surviving the itinerary, the list of places passed through by a pilgrim, but going the other direction from Bordeaux on the Atlantic coast, ultimately to Jerusalem. And one of the first stops is in fact Eos. So long before the Santiago route and the, you know, the Camino de Santiago, there was a pilgrimage route already running across the Gers, but in a different direction. Awesome. Yeah, layers upon layers of history here. Well, thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. This has been super insightful and it definitely adds a layer of depth to my understanding of the Roman history running through this area. So thank you for your time. Yeah, not at all. Happy to have to help out. Here's the thing about serendipity. There's no formula for manufacturing it. I often see pilgrims talking online about their desire to not rush it, to enjoy the Camino, to be open to surprises, to be willing to stop and smell the roses, and all of those good things. And I agree, those are excellent organizational principles for setting out on Camino. But let me tell you about a time when I was, by design, rushing it. Really rushing it. Last summer, I had a group of students on the Via Podiensis, and we were walking from Condom to Eos. It's a long stage, as Kevin and I talked about, 34 kilometers. The problem, though, was that it was Bastille Day. Everything in Eos was closing at midday for the holiday, including the tourism office, which we needed to check in at for the municipal gîte, as well as the supermarket. And we often will prepare group meals together when we have a kitchen and a supermarket, because that brings the cost down to like five or six euros per person for dinner and breakfast, instead of the pricier alternatives. So 34 kilometers plus a 12.30 p.m. deadline to both check in and complete grocery shopping. I asked for volunteers in my group who were willing and able to speed run the stage with me, got one, and we hustled our way towards AOs. We reached Montreal when the pastries in the bakery were still warm, and we made it to La Motte when the crowd that had overnighted in Montreal were still trickling through. It was a wild morning. It was also pretty fun. We reached AOs in time to watch a parade marching down the main road. We checked into the jeep before noon, dumped my pack out on the bed, then ran back down to the Leclerc supermarket at the entrance to town to grab supplies for burrito night. Or Americans. And then suddenly, right around midday, we were already done with one of the longest walks of our pilgrimage, with a whole afternoon and evening to while away in the town. My colleague took a long nap while I went roaming. I discovered a farmer's market on one side of town, and then within that market, I miraculously stumbled across a food truck selling Thai food. It probably says something about me that discovering Pad Thai in Aos was emotionally on par with a medieval pilgrim having a vision of Santiago. But on that day, both my heart and my stomach were full. The upside of such a leisurely afternoon, too, was that it was easier to stay awake until darkness fell 
and the fireworks show erupted over the lake below town. Anyway, the point, I think, is that we sometimes have a fairly rigid notion of how serendipity happens. I guess it makes sense. If you're relaxed, going slowly, comfortable with stopping, you're probably in a good mood. Things are probably going right. By contrast, if you're rushing, it might suggest that something has gone wrong. And that can make you tense, closed off, more focused on your fear of what will happen next or what has already gone awry. The limiting factor in all of that is not the speed at which we're walking, but maybe the activity of our own minds and the ways we are grappling with those exterior realities. That sprint to AOs could have been a source of consternation and unhappiness, and if we hadn't been as physically capable of managing it, there would have been legitimate concerns. And to be clear, if that were true, we just would have adjusted our plans. There's no point in taking extreme risk with health. In the end, though, it opened up possibilities that likely wouldn't have otherwise existed. And in particular, it brought me the sweet blessed Thai food, which I later washed down with burritos. Pilgrimage is awesome. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Kevin Greenstreet. You can find him in the GR65 Via Podiensis Walking the Le Puy Route in France Facebook group. Thanks as well to Dr. Simon Esmond Cleary. You can find his books, including The Roman West, AD 200 to 500, an archaeological study, at online bookstores. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again, maybe next week, maybe a little longer, but I'm coming back at least one more. <laughs>